You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Explorers podcast. Today is part five in our series on Alexander von Humboldt. Our focus today will be on Humboldt's 1829 Russian expedition. I have one note for today's episode. I have posted a map of his journey on our website, explorerspodcast.com. That is it for notes, so let's get rolling. It was April of 1829, and Humboldt was preparing for his journey into the Russian interior. But I want to back up a bit and go into more detail about the genesis of this project. Russia was governed at this time by the House of Romanov. The Tsar was Nicholas I, who had come to power in 1825. His wife, by the way, was Empress Alexandra, born Charlotte, the daughter of the Prussian king, Friedrich Wilhelm III. Now, representatives of Nicholas' predecessor, Alexander, had reached out to Humboldt in 1811 and 1818, inviting him to Russia. So, why would the Russians want someone such as Humboldt exploring the interior of their vast empire? Well, the answer was mostly about money. The Russians had seen the extensive work that Humboldt had done on his expedition to the Americas, in particular regarding the mining industry. The Russian government wanted the great Humboldt to come and check out their lands and assess and identify the opportunities offered by the Ural Mountains, which is the dividing line between Europe and Asia. Knowledge of what lay in the interior of Russia was woefully lacking, and having Humboldt investigate the region would offer some amazing opportunities for the Tsar's regime. Now, for a variety of reasons, Humboldt's invitations to go to Russia never came to fruition, and that takes us up to August of 1827. Humboldt was back in Berlin preparing for his now-famous lecture series, as well as writing and publishing his works. It was at this time that he was contacted by the Russian foreign minister, Count Georg Ludwig Kankrin. The precious metal platinum had been discovered in the Euro Mountains several years earlier, and Russian officials wondered if a platinum-based currency was possible in Russia. Kankrin then invited Humboldt to visit the Urals and give the Russian government an assessment of such an idea. Humboldt replied to Kankrin, expressing his skepticism of such a scheme, as most of the rest of the world operated on a silver-based currency. Despite these doubts, Kankrin replied to Humboldt in December of that year, saying that he would love him to come visit the Urals and assess the potential that the mountains offered. Humboldt thought that this would be a great idea, although he wouldn't be able to begin such an expedition until 1829. The reason for this was the weather. Russia is really, really cold, and Humboldt needed to depart on his expedition in early spring, spend the summer and fall on the road, and be home before winter set in. It was just not feasible to gather all the needed personnel, gear, and supplies for an 1828 start date. 
The Russians agreed to all this, and Humboldt began preparing for the expedition. The plan was as follows. Humboldt and his party would travel to St. Petersburg, then Moscow, and from there they would take the Siberian highway to the Ural Mountains in the east. They would then go to Yekaterinburg and Tobolsk in Siberia, and then turn back in a big loop. The Russian government would handle all the logistics, including lodgings, horses, and guides. Humboldt had wanted to go to the Caspian Sea and Mount Ararat on the Turkish-Iranian border, but Russia and Turkey were at war, so that area was off-limits. The journey was not at all like what Humboldt had experienced in the Americas. The entire route would be along established roads. Humboldt would have several carriages to transport himself, his team, and their gear, and there would be imperial troops to escort them the entire way. Humboldt had expressed his desire to meet the people, including the common workers, of Russia. But Minister Kankren quickly squashed that idea. The Russian Empire had no desire for Humboldt to be researching and commenting on Russian society and serfdom. This was to strictly be a scientific mission, nothing more. Humboldt would reluctantly agree to the conditions as the Tsar was the guy paying for the endeavor. By the way, the Russian expedition was, literally from the start, a compromise in Humboldt's mind. He agreed to the limitations imposed by the Tsarist officials due to his desire to visit the Russian interior. In addition to investigating the mines of the Urals, Humboldt put a heavy focus on magnetic studies. He wanted to continue his studies of magnetism of mountains and mineral deposits. So, for all of this, Humboldt would need a trusted but small team of scientists and aides. The first person would be Gustav Rose, a talented 29-year-old professor of mineralogy from Berlin. The second scientist was 34-year-old Christian Gottfried Ehrenberg, a celebrated naturalist just back from the Middle East. The other addition to the team would be Johann Seifert, Humboldt's trusted servant. The man would serve as the expedition's handyman, hunter, and valet. Seifert, by the way, will remain Humboldt's servant and confidant for the rest of his life. Humboldt would go about obtaining all the scientific instruments needed to make the most accurate measurements. The Russian government would advance him 1,200 cherbanyes, which is a gold coin. They would give him another 20,000 upon his arrival in St. Petersburg. Also, Humboldt began to learn Russian. As 1829 rolled around, Humboldt aimed to depart on his journey in March. However, his sister-in-law, Caroline, would fall gravely ill due to cancer. Humboldt cared deeply for the woman. In her last letter to her husband, Wilhelm, she noted that Alexander was loving and affectionate, attributes not usually associated with the man. Anyhow, Caroline would die on March 26th. Alexander was concerned for his brother, writing to a friend, quote, My brother has aged greatly. The suffering of her loss all but finished him. She was the common bond of our family. End quote. Despite Carolyn's death and his brother's grief, Alexander departed on April 12th, telling Wilhelm that he would write regularly. His destination was St. Petersburg. He had three carriages filled with people, instruments, trunks, and gear. This included things such as barometers, you can never have enough of those, paper, vials, and medicine. Humboldt, despite being 59 years old, was in excellent health, and he was excited to be on the road again. He even wrote the Russian minister, Kankrin, boasting of his stamina, saying, quote, I still walk very lightly on foot, nine to ten hours without resting, despite my age and my white hair. End quote. Those words, by the way, were not a boast. The ride east was a cold one, as winter was reluctant to release its grip on eastern Europe. There was rain and sleet and snow, and the rivers were swollen due to the melting snows. The company would have to be ferried over rivers 14 times in the first two weeks of their journey. Humboldt arrived at St. Petersburg on May 1, 1829. There he was treated like royalty. 
He dined with the imperial family almost daily, visited the city's museums, art galleries, and scientific institutions. At the Ministry of War, he was given the latest maps and data about the area that he was heading into. Humboldt promised the Russian Empress, Alexandra, that he would bring her some diamonds, a major boast as no diamonds had ever been found in Russia. It was also in St. Petersburg that the bulk of the money that Humboldt was using for the expedition was delivered to him. The Russians had kept their promise and would fund the entire expedition. Also, at this time, Humboldt's company was joined by a Frenchman, Count Adolf Pollier, an old friend from Humboldt's days back in Paris. The man had married a wealthy Russian countess with estates around the Ural Mountains. He would thus accompany Humboldt on the next leg of the journey. Humboldt departed St. Petersburg on May 20th, bound for Moscow. The expedition reached Moscow, took on some more supplies, rested, and then prepared for their departure east. They would leave Moscow in mid-June, hitting the road for a 1,000-mile, or 1,600-kilometer, journey to the Urals. Humboldt and his team would be traveling on the Siberian Highway, well-maintained roads of clay and gravel. Everything was meticulously planned and organized by the Russian government. There were three carriages with three to four horses each. The horses always trotted, meaning they kept a fast, steady pace. Every 10 to 20 miles, they would reach a way station where the horses would be swapped out for fresh ones. This kept the company moving at a steady clip. Humboldt was always accompanied by a mining official, as well as a detachment of soldiers, usually Cossacks. These were for Humboldt's protection, but also to deter any of the foreign dignitaries from wandering off to places they were not allowed. At night, there would be inns and taverns to stay at, or the homes of local officials. And word always was sent ahead, meaning the town mayor or chief of police was there to greet Humboldt when he arrived. The further east the company went, the distance between villages and towns grew. Humboldt and his party would sleep in their carriages or in the open air when necessary. He and his team conducted experiments and collected data as they went. This was, to be honest, not exactly roughing it. The journey was through known territory and the Russians had planned out the route, so anything that was needed was there for Humboldt and his people. For Humboldt, this part of the journey was pretty dull, and the controls that the Russians placed on him were frustrating. A note about the Russian regime at this time. Tsar Nicholas had embraced the ideological doctrine of orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationality. This was unity centered around the church, the Tsar, and Russian tradition. The Tsar, even in the far-flung regions of the empire, kept everything under a tight fist. He had spies and informers everywhere. Censorship was common, and no one dared criticize the Russian feudal system. Dissent was not tolerated. On their journey through Russia, officials kept Humboldt and his party on a short leash. There was no talking to people without permission, no wandering off to see what life was like in the factories or on the farms. Humboldt wrote to his brother, complaining about the restrictions and the surveillance, saying, quote, We cannot take a step without being led by the arm like invalids, end quote. Still, Humboldt would see signs of the oppressiveness of the Tsar's regime. This included gangs of exiles working on the roads and lines of marching prisoners bound together by ropes and chains. And despite all of their best efforts, Humboldt would talk to the locals when he could. I mentioned earlier that Humboldt had agreed not to investigate or report on the social situation in Russia, and he would keep that promise. His books on Russia will lack any commentary regarding the lower classes in serfdom. Privately, he was appalled by it all, but publicly, he refrained from such opinions. We actually get more information about this sort of thing from Humboldt's companions, including Gustav Rose, who would write an account of the journey and include his more critical observations of the Russian regime. Anyhow, Humboldt's party would reach the Urals. This range is the divide between Europe and Asia. 
It runs north to south for about 2,500 kilometers or 1,600 miles. The highest peak is 6,200 feet tall. That's nothing compared to Humboldt's excursions into the Andes, and certainly much smaller than the Himalayas. Now, Humboldt was here for specific reasons, mostly surrounding mining. As noted earlier, platinum had been found a few years earlier in the Urals, and the Russian government was eager to find out more about the extent of the deposits. Humboldt was also to examine the mines and assess their potential. At the same time, he was to identify new opportunities that might exist and assess Russian mining practices. Anything that could be done to improve the output of the mines was of interest to the Russians. Now, Humboldt would go about all of these tasks, but there was one thing I want to mention that held special interest. The Urals produced gold and platinum. Humboldt had seen that in Brazil, when these two minerals were found together, diamonds were often found as well. And so when Humboldt went into the mines of the Urals, he specifically went looking for diamonds. He thought they were there, even though diamonds had never been found in Russia. Heck, they had never been found outside of the tropics anywhere in the world. But Humboldt was confident in his theory. It is why he had promised Empress Alexandra that he would bring her some diamonds. And so Humboldt went looking for diamonds whenever he got the chance. Because of this, his Cossack escort called him the crazy Prussian Prince Humplop. Now, remember the Frenchman Count Adolphe Poirier, who had joined Humboldt in St. Petersburg? Well, Poirier would leave Humboldt's company and head to his wife's estate at Yekaterinburg. The estate had its own gold mines, and the Count instructed his men to look for diamonds at these mines. And you know what? Within hours, the first diamond was found. A month later, Poulier's men had discovered 37 diamonds. And thus, the first diamond deposits in Russia were uncovered. Today, Russia is the biggest producer of diamonds in the world. Humboldt would spend some time in Yekaterinburg, a city of 15,000, as he and his team packed up 14 boxes of ores, rocks, and mineral samples to be shipped back to St. Petersburg. From there, it was on to Tobolsk, which is about 300 miles or 480 kilometers to the east. Here, Humboldt was truly in Asia for the first time. They reached the city at the end of July. Now, Tobolsk was the planned terminus of Humboldt's journey. From there, he was expected to do a loop back to the west. However, Alexander von Humboldt had something different in mind. The journey had, until now, been fine. A bit dull and restrictive, but everything had gone as planned. But you know what? Here Humboldt was in Asia, 1,800 miles from St. Petersburg. What if he just kept going? Who was to stop him? The local officials had their orders, but were they really going to stop Humboldt from heading off on his own? And so Humboldt made an announcement. The expedition would continue east to the Altai Mountains, where Russia, China, and Mongolia converge. Here, mountains rose up to nearly 15,000 feet in height, or 4,500 meters. If Humboldt wasn't going to reach the Himalayas, well, the Altai mountain range would be a great counterpoint to his observations in the Andes. To cover his butt, Humboldt wrote a letter back to Minister Kankrin, saying that he was going to take a, quote, small extension, end quote, to their route. He said they were going to do more investigations of mines along the way and hoped to collect some rare plants and animals. Kankrin was too far away to say no, and thus when Humboldt announced the new plan, no one protested. And so, into the heart of Russia went Humboldt. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. 
And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, explorers. It's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon, that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for thru-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Alexander von Humboldt was going to have some fun. His small extension into the interior of Russia was exactly the kind of thing that he was interested in doing. By the way, this small extension was going to be more than a thousand miles or 1600 kilometers just to reach their destination. The three carriages, along with the Cossack escort, departed on July 29, 1829, and continued east through the Eurasian steppe toward Barnal on the Ob River. The Eurasian steppe is the grasslands that stretch across the Ukraine in southern Russia from Europe nearly to the Pacific Ocean. When I mention the steppe, we are talking about the western stretch of the territory. By this time, the western steppe had been converted to an agricultural zone. Thus, you have vast grasslands with fields of wheat and other crops. The ride going forward would be rougher and wilder, but Humboldt was enjoying himself. The more difficult it got, the more he enjoyed the journey. He would have cut quite the figure, an energetic man approaching 60 years of age, white hair, wearing a dark coat, necktie, and hat. A Russian official said this of Humboldt, quote, On excursions, he never rode horseback. When the carriage was unable to proceed, he would walk, climbing high mountains without any signs of fatigue, clambering over rough terrain like one accustomed to field work. End quote. The ride across the steppe toward Barnell went well at first, despite the increasingly rugged roads. The company was forced to sleep in their carriages or out in the open more often, as villages and waysides grew scarce. Humboldt saw a beauty in the vast emptiness of the land, even when the temperatures rose to as high as 85 degrees Fahrenheit or 30 degrees Celsius, and the mosquitoes came out in force. The dreaded mosquitoes, they get almost all of our explorers, were so bad that the men took to wearing crude masks. Humboldt called these masks torture devices as they were so suffocating, but the men would do anything to escape the mosquito swarms. Humboldt's party moved fast, even traveling at night when possible. In one 24-hour period, they covered 200 miles, or 320 kilometers. Oftentimes, other travelers would join Humboldt's company, enjoying the protection of the Cossack escort. Now, five days out of Tobolsk, Humboldt would run into a significant obstacle. An anthrax epidemic was spreading through the steppes. Anthrax is a bacterial disease and is deadly. It is usually contracted by cattle and goats and then spread to humans. There was no cure for the disease at this time. There was no alternative route around the epidemic, and when asked if they should delay the journey, Humboldt replied, quote, At my age, nothing should be postponed. End quote. Humboldt and the company plunged forward. They loaded up as much food and water as possible, and contact with other people was forbidden. Everyone, including the servants, stayed in their carriages. 
they would still have to change horses, but that was a risk they had to take. As they headed east, Humboldt could see the devastation of the epidemic. Fires burned at the entrances and exits of every village. Makeshift hospitals were commonplace. The carriages passed one field where they estimated that more than 500 horses lay dead. Humboldt and his company would reach the Ob River after nine days and a thousand miles. The Ob marked the end of the epidemic. To the south lay the Altai Mountains. Humboldt went from the mining town of Bernal on the Ob and took aim for Ostkamiyugorst, a fortress near the Mongolian border. Along the way, he investigated the local mines and collected rock and plant samples. At Ostkamiyugorst, the expedition was forced to leave their carriages as they headed into the mountains. It was simply too steep and rugged. The team turned to the flat carts used by the locals to carry their supplies and gear. The journey into the mountains was humble at his finest. He, Rose, and Ehrenberg collected rocks and plant samples. They took astronomical observations. They examined caves and rock strata and drew sketches. Humboldt would be able to compare all of these samples to those that he had collected and documented in Europe and South America. This was gold to him. Up into the Altai Mountains the men went, emerging into valleys void of trees, but with grass and shrubs so high they could not see one another. Humboldt was thrilled. Before him were mountains 15,000 feet high. This was the Asia he had imagined. However, he could go no further. It was simply too late in the year to go any higher into the mountains. The snow and the cold were returning, and it would only get worse. Humboldt was satisfied with what his team had collected and decided they could head home. But not without one more excursion. He wanted to go to China, and thus he headed for an outpost on the Mongolian-Chinese border on the Ertish River. Mongolian soldiers stood watch on one side of the river, Chinese on the other. The conversation that followed was interesting, as anything said went from German to Russian to Mongolian and then Chinese, and then back. But everything went well. People drank tea, and the Chinese officer in charge, after much ceremony, accepted Humboldt's gift of some expensive blue cloth. Many of the soldiers here had never met a white man, and they were fascinated by the visitors. Thus they poked and examined Humboldt, who loved every moment of the experience. Who was he to deny the other the traits of curiosity and wonder? And so Humboldt knew it was time to return. The weather would, sooner than later, turn bad, and he didn't want to be trapped for the winter. Humboldt and his party returned to their carriages in Ustkamayugorsk and then headed west, skirted along the steppe. Along the way, there were way stations, watchtowers, and fortresses, most of them manned by Cossacks. Humboldt's company went steadily west, but they were further south than the route they had followed while heading into the Russian interior. The first city of note that they reached was Omsk, and then Mias, the latter on the eastern slope of the Ural Mountains. Humboldt's small extension was now over. But don't worry, there are still some sidetracks ahead of us. But first, a fun story. On September 14, 1829, in Mias, Humboldt celebrated his 60th birthday by visiting the local apothecary, a man whose grandson would be none other than Vladimir Lenin. I love little tidbits like that. Okay, fun story done. From Mias, Humboldt would, again, conduct another side excursion. This was to the south, toward the Caspian Sea, a place he had dreamed of going since he was a boy. Humboldt, if you recall, had been forbidden to go to this area due to the war between Russia and Turkey, but word had reached him that the Turks had been defeated and the war was over, thus the journey. Humboldt would march south to the city of Astrakhan on the banks of the Volga. Ibn Battuta, one of our most prolific travelers, had passed through Astrakhan some 500 years earlier. Another fun side story here. Along the way to the Caspian Sea at the city of Orenburg, Humboldt was able to talk to a Polish man, a political exile. 
This was supposed to be forbidden, but you can't stop all such interactions. Anyhow, the man showed Humboldt a book, which happened to be a copy of Humboldt's own political essay on the Kingdom of New Spain. Fun story done. Humboldt reached Ostracon in mid-October, and from there boarded a steamer to explore the Caspian Sea and the Volga River. The Caspian Sea had always fascinated scientists, as its water levels often fluctuated dramatically. Humboldt suggested that volcanoes and other subterranean forces were a reason for these fluctuations. To see the Caspian Sea, Humboldt wrote to his brother, was one of the highlights of his life. And so, now it was, really, time to head back. No more excursions, no more extensions. From Ostrakhan, Humboldt headed northwest towards Moscow and then St. Petersburg. His team reached the latter on November 13, 1829, avoiding the harsh Russian winter. Humboldt and his party were healthy and happy, despite the restrictions the Russians had put on their journey. They had traveled approximately 10,000 miles, or 16,000 kilometers, in less than six months, passed through 658 way stations, and used 12,244 horses. In St. Petersburg, there were big celebrations honoring Humboldt, which he disliked, but he endured. The Tsar had, after all, paid for the entire expedition, so he felt obligated to take part in the dog and pony show. The Tsar, by the way, gave Humboldt the Star of the Order of St. Anne and gifted him an expensive sable coat. The expedition had not been perfect, but in the end, Humboldt had gotten what he needed. He had done his studies of the Ural Mountains, even predicting the presence of diamonds. He had collected botanical, zoological, and geological samples and information. He had studied Russia's mining, forestry, and agricultural industries. He had data from thousands of meteorological and astronomical observations. He even had some ancient books and manuscripts, which he intended to give to his brother, Wilhelm, who was one of the finest linguists in Europe. And his journey into the Altai Mountains gave him comparative information to help him further his own studies on the nature of the evolution of the Earth. I also want to note that Humboldt's work would have longer-lasting effects beyond himself and Russia. At a speech at the Imperial Academy of Sciences in St. Petersburg, Humboldt called for an international collaboration on the study of geomagnetism. He suggested a chain of weather stations across Russia to go with others all around the world. The international scientific community took up the challenge, and within a few years there would be weather stations in St. Petersburg, Beijing, Alaska, Canada, Jamaica, Australia, New Zealand, Sri Lanka, and even the tiny island of St. Helena in the South Atlantic. This was Humboldt's magnetic crusade, and within three years these stations had made more than two million observations. Humboldt and his companions would depart St. Petersburg on December 15, 1829. Humboldt returned a third of the money the Russians had given him, asking that it be used to fund further explorations. That, he said, was far more important than his own financial gain. So the Russian expedition was done. Here are a few notes about it. 1. Humboldt was invited back by the Russians to do further studies and explorations, but he would ultimately decline due to the restrictions imposed by the government. He was happy with all that he had done in Russia, but the limitations were just too much. He refused to endure that sort of thing again. Item number 2. Humboldt would ultimately produce two works based on the Russian expedition. The first was a two-volume piece in 1831 and was based on a series of lectures that he gave on the subject. The second was a three-volume book titled Central Asia, which was published in 1843. Humboldt reluctantly dedicated the book to Tsar Nicholas, saying, quote, It was an unavoidable step, as the expedition was accomplished at his expense. End quote. Neither of those works, by the way, has ever been translated into English. Also, as I noted, Humboldt refrained from outright criticism of the Tsar or Russian society, including the antiquated feudal system. 
The books were praised by the scientific community, but they did not have the impact as had Humboldt's earlier works about his South American excursions. And the third and final thing I want to mention is that Humboldt came back to Berlin healthy and focused, and this will set him up for his most ambitious and sweeping effort, the bringing together of all the research from his long career into a multi-volume epic that he will call Cosmos. And that, my friends, is where we will leave things for today. Next time, we will talk about Cosmos, plus a bunch of other fun tidbits, and wrap up the life and enormous legacy of Alexander von Humboldt. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Before I go, I want to give a shout out to the supporters of the show. Thank you to everyone who helps out and wants to be a part of the podcast. This includes people such as Dan, Rudy, Beth, Andrew, Benjamin, Paul, Peter, Philip, Elizabeth, Cameron, Christopher, Chuck, David, Craig, Eamon, Eileen, Eric, George, James, John, Paul, Ralph, Thomas, Susan, and so many others. Thank you again. So that is it for today. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time as we wrap up the series on Alexander von Humboldt. Take care. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other shows, including The Big Box of Oddities and For the Love of History. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.